Everybody else down there in Sandestin, chilling out in the rain? We're here studying the Bible. It feels like 4 o'clock in the morning since last Sunday. The clock changed. Uh, you know, we're just beginning to get a little sunlight when you come to Amen. Whammo. Back to the dark. In the rain. Welcome. Glad you're here. Take your dry Bibles out and uh, turn to Mark chapter 11. And uh, you will remember last time, we didn't finish, but we started talking about the real business of Jesus. We saw this in two passages put together. One is his dealing with the blind man, Bartimaeus. And we saw that that's a very important symbol for us. It shows us what Jesus is about. That is to, to heal us of our brokenness. And in such a way that we want him to heal others of their brokenness too. And we saw the contrast between the way Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on triumphal Palm Sunday in the way that David came in when he conquered the city from the Jebusites. They put the blind and the lame out front for a warrior. They had to defeat the blind and the lame first before they got into the city, and David did. Jesus was confronted with the blind as well, and he healed him. He didn't kill him, he healed him as he makes his way triumphantly into Jerusalem. So very stark contrast between his entry into Jerusalem and the entry of David into Jerusalem. Then we got into chapter 11 where he begins to make this entry and we saw that it's a very highly planned and stylized prophetic symbol in the way that he comes into to Jerusalem. He comes in, he's obviously planned it all. He's sovereign over his activity. No one's making him do anything he doesn't want to do. He ordains that a cult would be ready for his disciples to go and lay claim to, and they do. He comes into the city and people take off their cloaks. You don't take off your cloak for anybody but majesty to show that your complete submission to them. They own everything, including the clothes on your back. They put down the clothes on their back and they wave palm branches, which also, you may recall, is... uh, uh, brings to mind the great entry into Jerusalem of Judas Maccabeus when the Maccabees defeated the uh, Greeks in the 2nd century B.C. So now 100 and, uh, 100 and uh, almost 200, but 175 years later, here comes Jesus, and they're waving the palm branch again, uh, which reminds them of when the Jews came back into Jerusalem, laid claim to the temple, cleansed it, laid claim to their land again and took sovereignty over their nation. So all of this sort of political, military sort of symbol uh, is before them. That's not on Jesus' mind, but that's on their mind. So they're welcoming their king, their Messiah, their conqueror, who comes into Jerusalem. It's very loaded with meaning, recalling Zechariah 9.9, as we saw. And when Jesus comes into our presence, he comes to take over. He comes to elicit our praise so that He above all is worshipped by us. And that's what happens when He comes to a personal life. It's what happens when He comes to a church. Jerusalem was the church. It was the very center of the church. He comes to lay claim. And so you can't really meet Jesus as He is and not have Him lay claim to your life. That's the reason a lot of people really don't want to get too close to Him, as we're going to see. Because when he comes into Jerusalem, he comes on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace, rather than a horse, which is a a symbol of war. But he comes to take over. He goes then, remember, right into the temple, enters the city, goes straight for the temple, the very heart 
of Jerusalem's religion, the very heart of Israel's religion. He goes into the inner sanctum, as it were, and then we're going to pick up on what he does when he gets there. Now, let's, let's, we stopped with the, the end of verse 11. Let's pick up with verse 12, and let's read it again, verses 12 through 14. And we're dealing with Jesus. real business is to establish God's kingdom for all the nations. We saw in verses 1 through 11, he claims to be the king. He plans his own coronation. He elicits our praise. And now, B, he condemns the hypocritical worship of his people. And let's see how he does this. The next day, verse 12, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. All right, so this seems a little odd, doesn't it? Here's a tree that's minding its own business. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a perfectly good tree. And it's, it's behaving according to nature. Uh, it's not the season for figs. It's the spring when the leaves come out. The figs come out around June. This is in the spring. So the tree's not supposed to have figs by nature. What? In the world, is Jesus doing cursing the dying fig tree? <laughs> you know, it's not the fig tree's fault, seemingly. Well, uh, don't get caught up in the season of the year. Basically, what Jesus is doing, once again, is using a prophetic symbol. That's all it is. Just like riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is a prophetic symbol. You know, fulfilling Zechariah 9. Here he's fulfilling a lot of Old Testament ideas. And if you want to get a quick idea, you can look at, for example, uh, Micah. Uh, this is on page 1476. Micah 7, verse 1. Micah is going to talk about what lousy shape Israel is in, all the injustices, uh, how they are stealing from one another, how they lie to each other, how they accept bribes, how things are so unjust in Israel. And Micah uses this sort of prophetic language in verse 1. He says, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. That's Micah 7, 1. So Micah says, I'm, I'm like a guy who, who's hungry and goes out and wants some fruit and there are no figs on the tree. And Jesus is saying the same thing about Jerusalem, about his people. I desire fruit from you, and there's no fruit. And so what you see here is a cursing upon the fig tree, which in the Old Testament also stood for Israel. Israel was represented by a number of things. As we'll see, they're also represented by a vineyard later on in chapter 12. But they're also represented by a fig tree. A number of places in the Old Testament, you'll see this. So the fig tree is unfruitful. Well, the symbol is obvious, isn't it? Israel's unfruitful. And Jesus curses the unfruitful fig tree, which is also to curse the current administration of Israel. Now, we're going to find that this is a massive condemnation of all the uh, religion of the church of that time. And that, of course, is the reason that Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. just 40 years later. Uh, and it did. It fell and it's never arisen again. And as a matter of fact, it's not meant to arise again until the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. So the old Jerusalem 
the old religion, really, and all the rabbinical crust that was put upon the Old Testament, all that was finally judged by Jesus Christ. And here he is like a true prophet coming, announcing judgment. We dealt with the minor prophets a few years ago. Remember, was that last year? (laughs) Dealt with the minor prophets. And we saw how they pronounced judgment and then judgment came. Well, Jesus here is pronouncing judgment and it is going to come in just 40 years after this. So here he is pronouncing judgment on the fig tree. Why? Because it did not bear fruit. It was the Israel was professing to be God's people, but they were not bearing the fruit of repentance. And I just wonder, you know, if Jesus Christ were to come and physically judge the church today, how many of them would be leveled? How many of the buildings would be leveled? Because of professing one thing, but not bearing the fruit of following Christ. So what Jesus desires from his church is fruit. What is fruit? It is righteousness. It is conforming to the revealed word of God. It is giving our hearts and lives, as as Don was just praying a few moments ago, saying to him, whatever you want us to do, we will do. Where you want us to go, we will go. What you want from us, we'll give. Whatever it is, that's fruit. It is a complete obedience to the Lord. And he did not find it among his people. And so he pronounced judgment on Jerusalem. One day, of course, when Jesus Christ does come back, uh, let's, we're, we're all the prophets now uh, because all the sons of God are prophets in the New Testament. The Spirit's been poured out upon us. And part of our message is that if we do not follow Christ, if we do not give ourselves to him, there's going to be a great leveling, a great judgment of the church. Judgment will begin with the house of God, Peter says in his first epistle. So the church needs to be very careful when we take on the name of Jesus Christ. We also take on the liability of judgment for those who are hypocrites. God hates hypocrisy, holds his nose, as it were, uh, to use some of the vivid illustrations in the Old Testament. Now, in verses 15 through 19, then he, in a very dramatic and prophetic way, deals with the temple. And let's look and see what he does in verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, he cleanses God's temple of its corruption. He is cleansing the church. He's cleansing the very heart of the church of its corruption. This is all very powerful prophetic symbol. Now, I want us to notice three things about that 17th verse, if you will. The first is the temple is his house. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer. The temple is his house. And then, of course, we know the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., which was not just the act of the Romans who destroyed it, just as the act of the captivity in 586 B.C. was not just the act of the unrighteous Babylonians. It was the act of God himself working through the wicked to judge his own church. Of course, Habakkuk has a hard time with this. How can God use the unrighteous to judge his own people? And God says, well, I use them to judge you because you're unrighteous, and then I'll take care of them later. He'll take care of the Romans later. But he uses the Romans to destroy his own 
people's temple. The temple, of course, now is his people. And if you look at Ephesians 2 and 1 Corinthians 3, you'll find that we are called the temple of God. So we belong to God. We are the living stones that make up the temple. And so what you have in this age and the age to come is that the temple of God is made up of his people. The temple in the Old Testament was a type and a shadow. It's not meant to be rebuilt. It's already been rebuilt. It is, it is ourselves. We are the temple. And then, of course, one day he'll array us in, in our glory and we will be the dwelling place of God. That's what a temple is, the dwelling place of God. So we're not going back to bricks and mortar. We're not looking to build another temple back there on a, on a hill in the city of Jerusalem because God has gloriously fulfilled that type and shadow in his own people. And now his judgment comes upon his people, not just a building. So we have to be very careful that God, yes, is our father, but he is a holy and a righteous and a powerful father. He is a judge. And we must be very careful, careful with the way in which we deal with him. We must understand that his church is his house. And if you want to, you could say this building is his house or any church that building that's given over to the Lord, dedicated to him. That's what it means to consecrate something to him. That means it becomes his property. And it would be a surprise to a lot of people who have named certain things after themselves. And when someone wants to change this or change that in the church, no, I gave that. You can't change that. Now, hold on just a minute. Whose is it? It's the Lord's. You find in church buildings where you have certain plaques given for this, that, and the other, people will start feeling like it's their room. It's their Bible they gave in memory of someone. I, I, had a, I was pastoring a church, and uh, the, the uh, elders wanted to change the translation that was in the Purex. I think the old one was the RSV, which is a good translation, uh, but they wanted to put it in the NIV Bible. Well, they made a big mistake, and of course, I was the one who made a big mistake. I didn't check on this. I didn't check to see who had given the old Bibles 25 years before. That's a bad mistake. If you're a pastor or you know a pastor, please tell him, don't change the few Bibles unless you know who gave the old ones. Because you know what? When people give things and they put their name on it, even though it says they're consecrated, given over to the Lord, it's his property. You know what? People don't think it's God's property. They think it's their property. We had one unbelievable hellish issue in that church. For months, I don't think that woman ever forgave me. I mean, we'll get to heaven and I'm not sure she'll even speak to me. Because she gave those Bibles in memory of somebody, she and another woman. The other woman was a little more forgiving, but boy, I'm telling you what. So we all lay claim to certain things and we all think it's ours. It's not. If you have consecrated something to the Lord, if you're building that you worship in, have been consecrated to the Lord, realize it is the Lord's. And you're simply a steward. You're seeking to manage it for Him, not for yourself. And of course, we are the ones who are to consecrate our very bodies. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That is, give them over, consecrate them, so that your body doesn't belong to you either. You can't even lay claim to that. What are you doing? Laying claim to some property in the church. You can't even lay claim to your own body. What are you talking about? So when something's given over to him, he owns it. And he says, my house. And these people thought it was their house. The elders thought it was their house. Jesus says, it's my house. My uh, missions professor in seminary is one of my all-time favorite people and one of the heroes uh, in my life. You know, you don't want to make somebody a hero until they die. Because, you know, 
just consider Solomon. They can screw up on you, you know, before they die. They can not finish their life well. So don't make them a hero yet. Let them die first. Then, then you can establish them as hero. Well, I've established one. Dr. J. Christie Wilson, Jr. was my missions professor. He was a missionary in Afghanistan back in the 50s. His daddy, who was J. Christie Wilson, Sr., uh, was missions professor at Old Princeton Theological Seminary. And Dr. Wilson Sr. was a missionary in Iran. And so my missions past, uh, professor grew up in Iran speaking Farsi, and then he becomes a missionary to Afghanistan in his early adult years. He had been a chaplain in the U.S. Navy. And so when he went to Afghanistan, the only way you could go there, of course, was as a tent maker. You couldn't go as a missionary. They'd never let you in. Uh, the people in Afghanistan at that time uh, used to have a saying that said, when Satan fell out of heaven, he fell into Afghanistan. Now, those are Afghanis who are saying that. It's a very wicked, evil place. And uh, young Dr. Wilson, uh, you know, went there in the 50s, and uh, he found out that was true. Uh, so he and a few others would worship in his house. They would pull the shades down because it was so evil. If anyone had found that they were worshiping there, they would have taken their lives. So they had a few teachers in some schools there who were also tent-making missionaries who would come on the Lord's Day and worship in Dr. Wilson's house. And a few diplomats in some of the embassies in Kabul uh, would come and worship. Well, so many started to come and worship. They didn't, didn't have room for them anymore in their house. And they, they really needed a church building, but that was, a, that was a laughing, that was a joke. How are you going to have a church building in Kabul, Afghanistan? It, it was not only illegal, but it would be a, taking your life in your own hands to even ask for such a thing. Dr. Wilson knew Edward Elson, who was the minister at the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., where Dwight Eisenhower went to church. And uh, President Eisenhower had known Reverend Elson as an army chaplain in the war, and so they were good friends. And Dwight Eisenhower went to church. Now, in case you didn't know, Dwight Eisenhower was named by his godly mother, Dwight, for, because of Dwight L. Moody, the great, great evangelist. But... Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was never, never professed his faith and wasn't baptized until he was in the White House. And Dr. Ellison baptized him, and uh, he, he became a professing Christian and joined the church uh, in his uh, presidency. But anyway, he went to, uh, to the National Presbyterian Church. So Dr. Wilson in Afghanistan wrote Dr. Ellison and said, you know, in Washington, we recently uh, allowed and helped build a mosque for our emissaries from the Middle East. I wonder if it would be possible if you had asked the president if on his trip to Afghanistan in 1959, on his Asian trip, if he would suggest to the king, King Zahir Shah, uh, that we be allowed to build a church building in Kabul, which is exactly what President Eisenhower did. And uh, King Zahir Shah uh, did allow a building to be built. So... Ten years later, on May 17, 1970, a beautiful church building was dedicated to the Lord. And they dedicated it to him. They gave it to the Lord. They said, to the glory of God. And then they quoted this very text. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Mark 11:17. And they then said, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Of this house. That was on the cornerstone of the building. Well, uh, three years later, it was destroyed. 
what happened was uh, the the king who had been king, uh, there had been a dynasty there for 227 years. And the king had decided that he didn't want these infidels with their building in Kabul. So they went to destroy it. When a German merchant who, who bought almost all the uh, beautiful stone in Afghanistan uh, and the mayor in Kabul had been trained in Germany, so this German merchant went to the mayor of Kabul and warned him. And he said to him, if you tear this church building down, your nation is going to be judged by God. That's what a German merchant said to the mayor. The mayor uh, didn't take heed, but he did remember the words. And the mayor sent a letter to the church saying, you need to hand this church building over so that we don't have to pay you for it. And the church members wrote back and said, it doesn't belong to us. Isn't this good? doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord, and you'll have to answer to Him. So they had heard that there was an underground church, the mayor had. So when they came over with their bulldozers, they digged way down below the foundation. They didn't know what underground church meant. They, were, they thought there was some, they kept digging down in there. They stored the flat and the whole thing, and the whole while, the church members were feeding them uh, cookies and tea and just taking it as an opportunity to witness. The building was flattened on July the 17th, 1973. That was about uh, six weeks after I graduated from the University of Virginia. It was flattened on that day. That very night, a 227-year dynasty was overthrown. A man named Daoud uh, instigated a rebellion and took over the country and held it for five years until the communists overthrew him. And then, of course, Russia invaded a year later. That country went into total chaos. And Dr. Wilson said that all the people that he knew, all the Muslims that he knew in Afghanistan, used to say, you know, when we tore that building down, God's judgment came upon Afghanistan. Very interesting. You look at Afghanistan today, you know, 30 years later, 35 years later, you see it's still in chaos. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm not here to claim that I know that because they tore, tore a building down, that they uh, invoke God's judgment. But it is an interesting set of providences, isn't it? That when God establishes himself in his people, this we do know, that anyone who touches his people is invoking the judgment of God upon themselves because we are the temple of God. It is his house. We've been given over to the Lord as his people. So anyone who persecutes Christians is, has God to deal with and they will not be happy with the dealing that comes their way when they put their hands on the people of God. So Jesus is first of all saying, you have to recognize all of you who are selling here and making your profits here because of the church, all of you who, and this was the deeper issue, frankly, all of you who are walking around the, court, the temple courts doing your politics, which is what they were doing, they would meet together there and all their political shenanigans uh, would be done there at the temple. It was all about politics. It was all about Israel versus Rome. It was all about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And all of you who are wasting our time here in my house, just dealing with politics, dealing with merchandise, dealing with your own selfish concerns, corrupting the church of God, just remember this is my house, not your house. And sometimes I think that we need to remember that even when we go into the fellowship of the saints. What kind of frame of mind do we have? 
What business are we really trying to conduct when we enter the fellowship of the church? We must be very careful because that fellowship is His house. And even the things that we talk about, the attitudes of our hearts, the mission that we're trying to accomplish, first of all, worship of God, and then blessing the saints, that mission has to be on our mind because it's His house, it's His business that's to be conducted. He makes it very clear when He goes in to cleanse the temple. That's the statement He's making. He's laying claim to the church again. Give me my church back. Let go of it. And let the Lord have it and then fulfill His purposes in the church. And then look what He says in, uh, in the second part of that verse. He says, My house will be called a house of prayer. He was driving out those who were buying and selling. He was driving out the politicians. He was driving out... I mean, there were even there were rabbinical laws against using the courts of the temple as a shortcut. You were supposed to go around it. If you weren't doing the business of worship and the business of the church, you go around it. You don't profane the sacred by just using it as a shortcut to get to, to shop on time. And these people were doing all kinds of things. It had ceased to be a place of prayer. And so it is with this church. We must remember the main business of the church is praise and prayer. Can I say that again? The main business of the church is praise and prayer. Now, let me just ask you something. Does your church life fit the agenda? Main purpose, praise and prayer. That's what Jesus is reminding us of. That's what He wants. That's the fig leaf. Uh, not the fig leaf, but the fig. That's the fruitfulness that He wants. My people worshiping Me. My people seeking My face. My people obeying what they hear in My Word. It's a conversation. It's intimacy. It's a relationship. That's what He wants in His church. And He wasn't getting it. And then He says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, What's interesting about this, of course, is that it is a quote from Isaiah 56. And if you want to turn there, you can look with me at Isaiah 56. It's an interesting chapter talking about the glory of God, which is to come. He says, um, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. He's saying even the eunuchs who were supposed to be uh, kept out of the temple courts because they were unclean. He says in that, in that great day to come, the eunuchs will be included and be given a name there. Uh, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. That's an important concept. Eunuchs had something important cut off, but their names will never be cut off. And he says their name will be better than having sons and daughters. And what's this all about? Verse 6, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord. Foreigners bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. You see what he's saying? On that last day, those who have been excluded will be included and their joy will be to relate to me in prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The great tragedy of what was going on in Jerusalem in the temple courts was they were doing their business and doing their politics where? In the courts of the Gentiles. That's where they had set up shop. That's where they were selling their animals. There's where all the noise and the chaos was. It was the very place in the temple 
where the Gentiles were encouraged to come. The Gentiles couldn't, couldn't go past a certain point. And then women couldn't go past a certain point. Only the men could go into the inner courts. And then, of course, only the priests into the, into the holy place. And then, of course, only the high priest once a year into the Holy of Holies. But the Gentiles were welcomed into a certain court. It was this very court where Jesus is cleansing the temple. He's cleansing the court of the Gentiles. He's saying, make the way open for the nations to come. Because we're to be a people. My house is to be a house that is open to all people. And furthermore, is to be recruiting all people from around the world. Do you see the passion of Jesus Christ for world missions? To bring all the nations in to be a people of prayer, including the Muslims? The Muslims are trying to kill you as you go to evangelize. And you're supposed to continue to lay down your life that they may come to know the Lord that He may have them in His house to worship Him. That's what He really cares about. And He goes into Jerusalem, taking over the city as a king of peace. And He goes straight to the temple and cleanses it so that it becomes a place, His church becomes a place of prayer for all nations with no discrimination. No discrimination. And so for those of us who are very loyal patriots, be very careful that you've not exchanged your Bible for a flag. Be very careful that you've not exchanged the nation of God for a geopolitical nation into which you were born. Be very careful that you don't do that. Because the Bible is the Word of God and Christ is the Lord of the church and His church is His nation and it includes all geopolitical nations in this world. Be very careful. And our founders were careful. The founders in this nation were careful. Would you please be as careful as they? so that everything is under God's authority. And therefore, we do not become tribalistic, which is the precise problem that moralism and legalism always leads to. Look at it in the Muslim world. They're very tribalistic. They're very legalistic. Those two things always go together. So our hearts would be open to all the nations, equally, aggressively, Does that mean that I'm not happy to be American? I'm very happy to be American. I'm very grateful to be American. Does it mean that I wouldn't fight a war for my nation? No, I would fight a just war for my nation. I'd lay down my life for my nation. But to the greater cause that all nations would know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in obedience to Him that I'll lay down my life for my nation. You see what I'm saying? So you have to be very careful here as you look at the heart of Jesus Christ. They expected Him to be a Jew only. They expected Him to be a Jewish deliverer only. And he goes in his conquering way. He goes to the temple and says, no, I'm going to conquer for the entire world. And I'm not going to play these tribalistic, patriotic games. Here's the real agenda. His house is a house for all nations, a house of prayer for all nations. Then in verses 22 to 25, he really stresses this idea of prayer. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I'll tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So first of all, he's emphasizing faith. Have faith in God. He confirms the power of believing prayer. He emphasizes faith. And the first exercise of faith, says John Calvin, is prayer. Prayer is, as he says it, the chief exercise of faith. So if you're going to emphasize faith, you're going to emphasize prayer. Because prayer is the weapon of the faithful man. 
A man who really believes in God and his promises, who really believes in Jesus Christ and his care for, for him, that man is going to be a man of prayer. A man who believes is a man who's going to talk to God. Whatever you believe in, you're going to talk to him. Most of us end up talking to ourselves. But Jesus emphasizes faith. And then he emphasizes forgiveness. And he says, if you're going to talk to the Lord, and if you're going to receive the most blessed asset from him, benefit from him, which is the knowledge of your forgiveness, you're going to have to forgive one another. Your prayers are not going to be effective if you don't forgive one another. Our whole relationship with God is built on a mighty act of forgiveness where God put forth His own Son to take away the wrath that was justly resting upon our own heads. And that's the reason we can talk to God. That's the reason that He listens to us. That's the reason He answers us. It's because of His own Son. It's because of the blood shed to remove our sin that we have access into the Holy of Holies. And we do. If God has done that for us, other people are to have access to us. Not based on their good performance, but based on our forgiveness. Our access to God is not based on our good performance. It's based on His mercy toward us. That's how we get in. Other men are to have access to you. Your wife is to have access to you, not because of her good performance. She's had access to you and love from you because of your mercy. And if you're married to a sinner, and that includes everybody here who's married, there's no other way to have intimacy with your wife because she will always let you down. And guess what? When we teach the women, we tell them the same thing about you. She'll always let you down. The only way you're going to have a close relationship with her is if mercy is coming out of your heart toward her, forgiveness toward her all the time. And to the degree that you really grasp the forgiveness of God for you, to that degree, you will forgive those who have wounded you. Am I saying you should be a doormat? Am I saying that you should ask them to steal from you again? No. Love includes boundaries, even with your children, doesn't it? Real love always includes boundaries. Every relationship has boundaries. We're not saying no boundaries. We're saying complete forgiveness. And there's a difference. So here's what Jesus is saying. My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. If you really knew what this was all about, you'd find yourself being mightily useful in the kingdom of God because the most important weapon for any man is his prayer life. And if you're going to pray, it's going to require that you forgive others because if you're not forgiving others, it's the number one proof that you've not received the forgiveness of God, which means you really don't know how to enter his presence in the first place. You're not coming into his presence as one who's been forgiven. You're coming into his presence talking to the boss or something like that. You're not talking to one who has sent his son to lay down his whole life for you and to wipe your sins away. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. So if you're forgiving your brothers and forgiving your sisters, you're then aware of what's going on in prayer. And then you are truly in the temple courts enjoying the house of God. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. That's his whole business. That's what his death on the cross is all about, to make a way for us so that we enter the house of prayer, so we enter the house of relationship, so we enter into intimacy with God our Father. That's the whole business, and that's what he was showing in Jerusalem that day. Now, let's look at the next text, which is the authority of Jesus beginning to be questioned, and we're going to see not only Jesus' real business, but Jesus' real authority that's revealed in these texts. And uh, we uh, will try our best to get through most of this. But the authority of Jesus is a threat to unbelieving human authority. 
That's what we're going to see in these first seven verses. The authority of Jesus is a threat to unbelieving human authority. So to the degree that I do not believe, and there's some degree of that in every one of us. There's unbelief to some degree in every one of us, in our flesh. To the degree that you do not believe, you consider Jesus Christ a threat to your own authority. That's the way it works. Now, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders of the church had really completely set themselves against Jesus. So he was a total threat to their authority. Let's look at the dynamic of human authority when it's confronted with Jesus' authority. It's the same dynamic that happens in our own hearts. We can, we can look at these scribes and Pharisees and we can say, well, look at these people, these idiots. You know, they don't, they don't know a Messiah when they see one. Or you can say, you know what, they're just like me. And that would be the part, uh, the number two would be the closer and more helpful for us. Let's look at them as a picture of our own selves when we're trying to lay claim to the house of God, when we're trying to lay claim to our own lives, when we're trying to lay claim to our own possessions. And let's see how we revolt. Let's look at the text. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, hmm. they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Isn't this delicious? <laughs> okay, let's look in verses 27, 28. We're going to see, first of all, a... Unbelievers in authority naturally question Christ's authority. Unbelievers in authority naturally question Christ's authority. When you're confronted with something you don't like, the first question you're going to ask is, who gave you authority to do that? So, says who? Right? Says who? <laughs> and that's exactly what they're doing. We, we did it when we were four years old in the backyard. Says who? You know, time to come in for dinner. Says who? Uh, you know, we know, we know how to do that. Uh, from birth. But notice how difficult the gospel is for people in authority. Look at verse uh, 27 and you'll see who is there. Chief priests, teachers of the law and elders. These are the religious elite. And notice how difficult the ministry of Jesus Christ is for them to accept. And you can go back to chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. Notice how difficult it is for someone who's got the world by the tail, who's rich, young, and powerful, to receive Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have more of this world that they think they're controlling. And in their own minds, they think they have more to give up. I think they're wrong, but in their minds. They have more to give up. You see how dangerous wealth is, how dangerous power is, power of any kind. It can be the power of good looks. I don't think too many of you struggle with that. It can be the, uh, <laughs> just look in the mirror, Wilson. <laughs> it could be the power of money. It could be the power of position. It could be the power of your reputation. It could be the power of your education and your knowledge. Uh, the power of, of anything. Uh, it makes it more difficult. And that's the reason Jesus says it is impossible 
for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because he's got power. He's got something. He doesn't want to let it go. So let me just say to those of you who are younger, plan now how you're going to face the temptations of older adulthood when you have more power and more influence. If you don't design it now and make your decisions now, you're going to be in trouble because they'll come at you at a wave. You won't expect them, and you'll be just left to the best you can do in the moment. You need to decide right now who is the power and the authority in your life. Those of you who are older and you found yourself immersed in this world's power, you found yourself sometimes making bad decisions, what you need to do is get away today and say, you know what, I want to recalibrate everything I'm doing. I want my whole life to be run under his authority. That's a day-by-day decision you have to make because there are day-to-day decisions that come before you that are based on that question. Because you'll see here, it's very, very difficult for those who have power to receive Jesus Christ. Very interesting. We've done some studies here on, um, on unbelievers in our own neighborhood. And uh, the surveys show that people are in this whole country, basically, are, are generally very open to hear about the gospel. There are only 5% of them that are very hostile and they'll cuss you out. Those are the 5% you remember. <laughs> and those are the 5% who make you say, well, I'm never doing that again. But uh, the other 95% really will at least listen to you. And about 60% of them are very open to what you say. And about 25% of them will actually come to church if you ask them. They're very open. In fact, studies show that most non-Christians out there, most of your friends who are not Christians, are wondering in their own minds why you're not talking to them. <laughs> this, we've, we found from polling them. And they are surprised that so few Christians ever invite them to church or invite them to a Bible study or anything like that. So down deep inside, there, there is a deep longing. There are 11% of the people in this city, if the studies are correct, that are just waiting for someone to present the gospel to them and ask them to receive Christ, and they will. 11%. That's a lot of people. We have about 800,000 in the MSA. We have about 800,000 unchurched people. So that's, that's 80,000 people. They're just waiting to be asked. But one thing that we do notice in our studies, it's not dramatic, but it, it is evident that the more education someone has and the more money someone has, the percentages of hostility go up just a little bit. It's not a huge trend, but you can see the effect of having this world's goods, that it does tend to harden the heart. So watch out that the world's goods don't do that to you. So you see that they're naturally going to question Jesus' authority. Now, what do they question? First of all, the nature of his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? Well, it's so interesting. If they've been following Jesus' ministry, which they have, they've seen him. They just, they just see Bartimaeus coming into Jerusalem. Hello? <laughs> By what authority? Who heals the blind, gentlemen? Is there anyone in the history of the world who has ever healed the blind? There's one. His name is Jesus Christ. If you want to know what authority he has, it's obviously the authority of God. These people are blind themselves. That's the problem. They need a touch. They need a touch of Christ so that they can see. But they ask the nature of his authority. Then they ask about the source of his authority. Who gave you authority to do this? Where did it come from? Well, that's a, not a bad question. I mean, if someone presents to you a religious idea and says this is going to take your whole life, you have the right to say, you know, by what authority? Who, who gave him Gave you this authority to say this? I mean, it's not, it's not altogether a bad question. It has to do with the attitude. But 
Let's look at B. Questions can only be answered if sincerely asked. A fool could ask more questions than a wise man can ever answer. Now, how can you tell if a questioner is sincere? Well, you can tell by the way that he listens to the answer and the way that he reasons with the answer and then what he does with the answer. You can see if he's sincere. How does Jesus find out? Well, first of all, he asks one important question. Does the questioner acknowledge divine authority? As a friend of mine said to a kid who was doing drugs and wasn't sure whether it was the will of God for him to stop, the youth minister, my friend, just said to him, he said, um, Bruce, he said, if it were clear to you that it were God's will for you to stop smoking marijuana, would you stop? Now, there's the question. That question happened to have changed Bruce's life. He ended up becoming a missionary, went on to Cal Berkeley and became a missionary to, the, to, the, uh, to Europe. Uh, that question did it. If you knew what the Lord's will was, would you do it? That's the more important question. Before you ask what the Lord's will is, the question is, are you willing to do it? So Jesus is asking one important question. Do you know anything about divine authority? So how does he ask? He asks about John's baptism. And he says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, the reason Jesus asked this is because Jesus' ministry was coming from the same authority that John the Baptist's ministry was coming from. And if they don't receive John the Baptist, they're not going to receive Jesus. This is a very uh, important method. And you will find in John chapter 1, verse 19, these same people went out to John the Baptist to ask who he was. You remember? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you claiming to be this, that, or the other? And John made it clear he was not the Christ, but he was pointing to the Christ. This is in John chapter 1. These same people, they checked out John the Baptist. So Jesus is just saying, what you find out over there? When you checked out John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or from human beings? And gentlemen, I suggest to you, if you're in business and you have some young business guy from across town that doesn't really know you and wants to ask you something about business or about relationships, you know, in his business or something like that, why don't you just, first of all, ask him, well, who else have you talked to? You ever do that? Who else have you talked to? Well, I talked to uh, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Oh, you've already talked to three people. Good. What did they tell you? Well, they told me this and they told me that and they told me that. Well, what did you think about that? Well, it's probably not bad advice. Well, have you done it? Well, no. Well, why don't you go take their advice, see how it works, and come back and talk to me? Why don't you try that? Sometimes, you know, we think that someone comes to us because we've got all the answers and we can fix it. What Jesus is doing is getting to their heart. What have you already heard? What have you already seen? What have you already observed? And what have you done with that? So let me ask you a question. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from earth? Well, of course, they're stuck. Uh, because he's getting to one determining motive. Does the questioner fear God or fear men? And we find that they feared the people. So down below the question about the intellectual and theological is the moral. Who do you fear, God or men? Because if you fear men, it doesn't matter what advice I give you. It doesn't matter what I tell you about myself. It's not going to help you. Now, it may hurt you by giving you one more quote to use before the Roman authorities to destroy me, which is hurtful for you. It'll be better for you if you exalt me. It'll be better for your welfare if you praise me. So I'm not going to give you one more weapon just to undo yourself. So what will be helpful for you is getting to the heart of this issue. And Jesus takes them right to the heart. Who do you fear? Well, this question that he asks 
is not going to answer the presenting question. It's going to answer the much deeper question. And they so they start reasoning. Well, if we say it's from from God, then it's obvious that we should do what John the Baptist said, which is to receive Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. So can't do that. If we say it's from earth, well, of course, the people will be upset because everybody knew that John the Baptist, everybody but the scribes and the Pharisees, knew that John the Baptist was from heaven, that his baptism was from heaven. So they feared the people and they couldn't make a right choice. So it doesn't matter what advice Jesus gives them. It doesn't matter what he says to them. As long as they fear men rather than God, it won't matter. And it doesn't matter with you either. If you're really more interested in image management before men than you are with heart management before God, who knows the heart and cares about the heart, then it doesn't matter how much Bible you read. It'll just bounce right off of you. And Jesus was asking these kinds of diagnostic questions for that reason. And then thirdly, there's one guaranteed outcome for those who are insincere. No answer. No answer for the insincere. Jesus said, neither will I tell you. There you have it. Men who make a habit of not saying what they think will continue to be confused. Now, secondly, uh, well, I think we're going to end there and we'll, we'll pick up with the parable of the tenants. That's a very important parable and I don't want to rush it. But basically, Jesus is going to once again present his authority to men. And he's presenting his authority to you today, too, and to me. He's saying, I'm coming into your life to take over. I come on a donkey, not a war horse. I come to make peace with you and so that you have peace with God and peace with your brothers. I'm coming to restore you as a heart of worship and of intimacy with God. I'm coming to take over completely. How are you going to respond? You would think that these scribes and Pharisees would have responded with worship once they saw the majesty and the power of Jesus Christ. But no, they didn't. They went just the other way. And there are only two responses you can make. You can either bow down before him and receive his authority, or you can rebel against his authority. And my observation is that one of the key principles of a man living an effective life as a man is learning how to deal successfully with authority. 360 degrees. You start off usually with authority of being over you, and then it's beside you, and then it's under you. 360 degrees. And you'll find that those who learn how to deal with it 180 degrees with authority over us are the ones who usually are the ones we want to have authority over us. Once they've learned to be under authority, we want them to have authority. And that's one of the key issues to your effectiveness. And here you find it in space. Here you find the Lord Jesus Christ confronting his church with his authority and saying, now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to rebel like a little kid who wants to maintain sovereignty over the backyard? Or are you going to say, yes, Lord. Here's my life. And I know that when you take my life, it will come back to me hundredfold. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending one who, whose real business was to restore intimacy with you. We thank you for one who came with real authority to take over our lives, to take over the church, to take over the world, to take over the universe, that we may be blessed by you. We pray, O oh God, for that deep wisdom this morning throughout the day that we may be men who continually submit to the gracious authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.